you would find your way to Luke chapter 3. One of the things we've been doing is looking at how Luke is reconstructing the life of Christ and his gospel. It's a glorious study in which we're seeing from the first moments of the life of Christ to the start of his ministry. We're not there into the start of his ministry yet, but we've been walking through how, how Luke is almost like, have you ever seen one of those Lego sets that has incredible intricacy? Like that have uh, large buildings, uh, skyscrapers, and they're all made of Legos. Now, when I was a kid, we had nothing like that. Nothing like that. And the intricacies, the windows, and all the different angles you can do, uh, it's completely maddening to me uh, the amount of time it would take to do that. Uh, but that's what Luke is doing. Luke is piecing this together, putting every block where it needs to be. So the form begins to show you who Jesus Christ is. So we're at the front end of the Gospel of Luke. He's writing this, as we've said, to Theophilus, so he can have this orderly account. And one of the things we did last week was we were in comparing this text and what it must have been like in the world of John the Baptist. We thought about the the reign of Napoleon. Napoleon seems to be on people's lips because of the movie. And we thought about the fact that if you compared the population of the earth when Napoleon reigned in the late 1700s, early 1800s, right after the French Revolution, if you think of the amount of people that he ruled over, if you took the population then and the population now, and if you compared them time-wise, he ruled over more people that lived in Canada, America, and most of Mexico. 420 or so million people were under the thumb of Napoleon. It is said that he was in a conversation one day with some people, and he made this statement, which I find incredibly interesting. You see, Napoleon revered intellectuals, but he seemed to have been mystified by Christ. He said this, If Socrates would enter the room, we should rise and do him honor. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we should fall down our knees and worship him. Now, why is that? Why would Napoleon say something like that? Later on, it was discovered in conversations that the reason why he said that is because everywhere he went, Christ followers were, had already been there. And when he heard of the life of Christ, Jesus never declared war on anybody. He never had a standing army. He came from an area of the world that uh, could have been called dysfunction junction. And yet, everywhere Napoleon went, followers of Christ had already been there. Mystified him. Amazed Functionally, we would say that um, Napoleon realized that Jesus made all the difference. Didn't need to be a general. Didn't need to be a conqueror. He must have been extraordinary. And while Napoleon certainly wasn't a Christian, we have no indication of that. He recognized that Jesus makes all the difference. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, be warmed by that thought. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, I'd encourage you, uh, don't wait another day. But let's get to know him a little bit. Let's find out what he's about. We're going to find out a little bit about Christ through the life of John the Baptist, because that's who we've been studying. We've been looking through because he's the, he's the warm-up act for Christ. He's the band that comes out first. He's the, the person who comes out before the main feature. 
But unlike a Broadway show or a rock concert, we find out things about Christ through John the Baptist and we find out a little bit more about the world that John the Baptist stepped into. We've been working off a thesis that Jesus is ordinary enough to relate to you, yet is supremely unique so he can rescue you. Uh, John is going to tell us a little bit about Christ and his identity. And what you're going to find is exactly that thesis. Jesus walks among people and would walk. And John points that out. But he's not a man. He's the Lord. You're going to see this morning that John puts Christ in a position of being the sovereign. Of being Jehovah. Being Yahweh. God with skin. Now, your mind will be stretched to the nth that it can possibly go, but we're going to stare at the reality nonetheless. And it's exactly what we need today, isn't it? We need somebody to rescue us, but we don't need somebody like us. We need somebody who can rescue us, but he's supremely different so he can really rescue us. He can deliver us. So we find ourselves in chapter 3, look in verse 1. We're going to go through 1 through 6. I'm going to try to pace myself. I'm hoping to get through 9, but we're just going to read through 6 and see what happens. You see with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Triconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become, shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. If you have a teaching guide, you're working through that. The first point that we talked about last week was the idea of when he arrived. We saw that in verses 1 and 2. And we saw that there's the political dynamic in verse 1, and then the religious dynamic in verse 2. And we said we've got to understand that, and we walked through that the last two weeks. You can look at that in the teaching online. But we were able to get our hands on what's going on, sewing handles on this thing to figure out what was the world like. Words words like uh, mediocrity, immorality, betrayal, anger, murder. Those were all things that summarize the, the viewpoints in the people's lives in verse 1. Then we get to verse 2, and we marvel. He was out of control, people of God no less. And then we move from that, and we saw that how he spoke, not just when he arrived, but then how he spoke in verse 3. It's important to see that his message was not about uh, moral betterment. It wasn't about education. It wasn't about being more faithful to your family being a better father or mother. He talks about a a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, repentance is demanded if forgiveness is to be received. And what we glean from this is, is that what the people really were struggling with was not their environment, but their heart. 
Jesus had come to set us free. You see, the issues of immorality and bad leaders and bad religious leaders centers in your heart. One of the things in the Old Testament we notice when Moses took the people of out of Egypt, the issue wasn't Egypt. The problem was that Egypt was in their heart. That's true for all of us. So he could have said a lot of things. John Baptist could have said a lot of things, but he focused on a baptism or repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And one of the things that is so important, we get to know John the Baptist by what he focused on. We get to know ourselves by what we focus on. You see, the idea is is that um, what you see reveals who you are. In any given moment of your life, just try this. You can jot this down. What you see reveals who you are. If you pay attention to to what you see and how you think about it, you can start seeing where you're at in any given of life. And then it goes from there is what you say reveals what you think. You see what you, you think escapes through your mouth. So what you see when you see something, and let's say you see somebody cut someone off. Is it about you or is it about the fact that this world is lost and that's why those things happen? And I'm in the same boat with you. My natural reaction is, who does that guy think he is? When those words escape my lips, it shows the way I think. Self-centered. What you think reveals who you follow. If I don't catch myself there, fundamentally I'm following myself. See, what I see something affects how I am. And then when I say something, it shows what I'm thinking. And if I don't catch myself there, it shows that I'm more interested in following myself, my own impulses. And this is the dangerous part that we find with the religious leaders and the Jewish people of the day. Whoever you follow, whoever you give in to the impulses, you don't stop and repent. That's who you worship. Have you ever thought about that? Whoever you follow is who you worship. And I'm I'm not talking about... um, in auditoriums, big auditoriums or shiny cathedrals behind stained glass window. I'm talking about in your living rooms and your dining rooms and hallways of work. You see, who you follow, who you listen to, who you conform your life around is who you worship. Doesn't mean you have to have a statue in front of you. Doesn't mean you have to have some type of doctrine that's been carved out for years. The practical street level reality is Whoever's voice we listen to, whoever shapes our minds, is seen in our words, seen in our actions, whoever that person is that we follow, that's who we're worshiping in a practical sense. I don't know about you, but I find myself worshiping myself. And that's exactly why we need Jesus Christ to come. That's the world he spoke into. And he spoke into it and he said, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins And we labored the point because that idea of forgiveness of sins, we don't understand how that must have hit them like a a bolt of lightning. Because the only people getting baptized for the forgiveness of sins during this time were the Gentile people wanting to be with the people of God. The Gentile people wanting to be Jewish. Now, they could never be Jewish in the sense that being Jewish is a bloodline. But they wanted to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if somebody put their hand up in the back row of a, of a service, they'd wandered in and said, I heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I believe in him. I want to follow him. I've heard of the covenant promises. I've heard of the Messiah to come. I believe the whole thing. Can I be in? 
Jewish people would say, yeah, first of all, be circumcised if it was a male. That's a pretty big toll to get into a religion. Then you've got to study. You've got to look into these things, believing these things. Then you need to be baptized, a baptism of repentance. You've got to repent of everything you've ever believed other than what you're taught about the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, as the Jews had been seeing that happening for hundreds of years, they'd been naming people who come into the belief system of the Jews, they would call them aliens. Now John the Baptist shows up and says, you are the alien." You are the foreigners to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you imagine the scandal? This is his message. You need to repent. He said that's how he spoke in verse 3. And by the time we get even to Romans chapter 2, 17 through 21, some 25 years later, they're still struggling with this. This is deeply rooted. So they were greatly offended. But John the Baptist doesn't back off. Why? He doesn't back off because it's an act of compassion when you tell people they're lost. It's an act of love when you tell people that unless you repent of your sins, you'll have nothing to do with God. I think that seems strange today. It's almost as if we've backed off that. It's almost as if we we don't want to make it too hard for people, right? We want to make it easy for people to trust in Christ. But the problem is this. We've made it so accommodating, we don't recognize the gospel anymore. And see, John doesn't do that. Just like a doctor. You go into a doctor's office. Let's say you have cancer. Do you want the doctor to tell you the truth? Or do you want him to be a nice guy? Do you want to have a good feeling about your office visit? No, you want the truth. Go to a mechanic. There's a clunking sound under my hood. He goes, oh, don't worry about it. Should be fine. Back of your mind, you go, no, something's not right here. Tell me the truth. That's what John's doing. John's laying this out. He's laying out that they need to hear because he is the voice of one. He has a word from the Lord. And specifically that idea in that passage where it talks about that he came with a word from the Lord, the idea of he's coming there. He has not simply a word general logos, but when the word of the Lord comes to him, he's a rhema. It's a specific message for a specific time for a specific people. And that's why he spoke. Verses four through six, why he acted. Very important. This was your homework assignment from last week. We find ourselves in a passage that reveals to us why John did what he did. Why he acted verses 4 through 6. Look at that verse. Verse says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
when he came into the world, why he acted is because God was calling his people back to himself. As we said last week, the book of Isaiah can be broken down nicely into two segments. The first segment, chapters 1 through 39, is all about judgment. It's all about buckling your chin strap, people. God's ripped because God's holy. And the people of Israel understood what happens when you give God the finger. Because they knew from Israel. Israel had been dominated by the Assyrians. Sargon II came down and devastated the people. Sargon had a way and the Assyrians had a way of letting you know they were in town. One of the typical things they would do when the Assyrians came, and this is modern day Iran, Iran, all people in the hot sun. They would go down the And as people would hear the screams of people as they would go down the roads of the people, everybody knew the Assyrians were in town. God in saying, I'm going to judge you, Judah, the southern half of Israel. Verses chapters 1 through 39 are all about judgment. Then chapter 40 through the rest of the book are about deliverance, about salvation, of what could be if you repent. If you would change what you're doing and do what I've called you to do in light of who I am. Now, notice, Luke records down the identity of John the Baptist at the doorway, at the threshold of moving from judgment, moving to deliverance, moving from condemnation to salvation. There's no mistaking it. We're at the point in which John is coming, giving them a harsh message because he wants them to be delivered, because he cares. And I think within that, we find a kernel of how we are supposed to approach this world. We give it a straight talk message, but we do from a spring of wanting people to be delivered. We want them to have hope. We don't put people down and we say, why do they act like that? Well, because they're sinners. We don't condemn them as Jesus talks about not condemning people in Luke chapter six. We recognize who we are, what we would be if it wasn't for the grace of Christ. So in one sense, we have this very firm standard in which we know right from wrong and we're not budging an inch. But on the other side, We recognize if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be me. And we see that because in this passage, he quotes and finds his identity. John the Baptist's identity, the voice's identity, comes from that doorway, that threshold in which God is now offering deliverance. But it'll only come if you repent. Now notice also in the passage that he builds up who is coming. It's the Lord. And when he uses terminology here, like every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, rough places shall become level ways. They would have understood that we would not. We have the interstate today. We have roads today. We have when the president comes, all the roads get shut down and he has a a motorcade and limousines and all that making his way through the highways. Back in this day when a king traveled, He would send out large groups of people. And if there was a hill area, they would level it. If there was a kink in the road or there's a large bend, they would straighten it out. 
Why? Because who is coming? The way needs to be prepared because of who he is. The king, the leader of the land, shouldn't have to go over hills, shouldn't waste his time around curves, go straight. That's the picture. It's almost like a hush could come over the passage. Whoa. Nobody else gets this kind of treatment. And what's interesting is he says he identifies himself, and we know that from from John chapter 1, chapter 20 through 23, he identifies himself as the voice, John the Baptist. He's not the Christ, but he's the voice. But turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. I'd like you to see a dynamic here. Remember, we're in the threshold, we're in the threshold of deliverance, of salvation in the gospel, or excuse me, in the book of Isaiah. But notice in verse 1, it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now what's interesting about this is, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Who? Who's supposed to comfort? Remember, the 39 chapters before have been about judgment. God dealing with people that are far from him and don't want anything to do with them. They may be religious in their activities, but they're pagans in their heart. And the first idea here is comfort. Comfort. We make the switch to deliverance. You know, the word in Hebrew for comfort has the picture of somebody at a funeral and they're mourning over somebody who's been lost. And somebody comes up beside them and comforts them comforts them. Our God is good. He'll be delivered. He's far from us, but he'll be near to you in your grief. That's the idea. Comforting my people. Now, who is the one who's supposed to comfort? This is the beauty of the message of this passage. Anybody who believes, anybody who sees Israel at the precipice of judgment, being offered repentance, offered salvation, You be the one. Do it. Follow the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Comfort my people, says God. Why? Because he's a comforting God. And they're his people. And notice how he goes down further. Verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she be received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The idea is, is that she'd be pardoned. That's why you comfort you going to be pardoned. Repent of what you're doing. Trust. And then he introduces us to the voice. A voice. A voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 3. Now, if you in your translation, in your Bible, I hope you have the word Lord in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why? Because translators created a little hint when they translated. This isn't the word Adonai or Elohim or any of the other compound words. This is the word for Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the personal name of the Lord. He could have said Adonai. He could have said Elohim, the creative force. But he didn't. He uses the personal name of the Lord. Who is the one? That he's preparing the way for. He's preparing the way of the Lord. And when we come to it, we'll notice in John chapter 1, 20 to 25, John the Baptist 
specifically points out the fact that he is the voice. And then he points out to Christ being the one. Christ being the one he's come to prepare the way for. Now put it together in your minds. If this is Yahweh in the Old Testament, that the voice is preparing the way for, John self-identifies that I'm the voice, John the Baptist says. I'm preparing the way for that guy. And he points at Christ. The implication is Jesus Christ is supremely unique. He is God. Either he is God or John the Baptist is a fool. John the Baptist is crazy. John the Baptist is not to be trusted. But since he is to be trusted, since he's not a fool, we've seen that from the record of Luke and building the case that he is divinely appointed. You can have confidence that Jesus is supremely unique, even though he's human. He's come to rescue us. And just like the people of Israel, they stand at a precipice. They could face judgment. He says, now the opportunity, now the door frame. Go through the threshold. Believe that Jehovah, Yahweh will deliver you. And all the more today. This was done 500 years before Christ. Christ is the personification of deliverance of Jehovah. And notice how the passage goes on in verse Uh, Chapter 40, but look over here in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? This is Isaiah now. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What's his word? That if you would repent, trust in me. While you will fade away from this life, I will be faithful to you and you'll be with me. I will promise you a life after this life because you've reconciled with your God. Goes down further. Um, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold the Lord your God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He will do that if you repent. If you repent. If you think that there's nothing wrong between you and God, he doesn't offer you deliverance, Israel. Judah, he cannot deliver you, but you'll be turned over. But for anybody else that was offered back then, John the Baptist is reissuing it. And the people of the day near Bethany, John's come out of the wilderness. What do we do to have this? You've got to repent and go through the baptism of repentance. You have to recognize that you're like a Gentile. By your heart. You've been performing. But you've not been worshiping. You've been following the 613 different rules. You've been manipulating those things. Saying you're the people of God. But what you need to know is. As far as God's concerned. You're like a Gentile. 
you need to repent. And when John puts his identifying mark that I'm like the voice, everybody on that countryside, everybody in Israel should have realized what stands before us is an option. Judgment or deliverance? Condemnation or salvation? Now, what do the people do? How do they respond? Well, we know the next step here is we move from this section of why he acted, but what he says and why, verses 7 through 9. And yes, we are going to do it through verse 9 today. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, that's a, that's startling. <laughs> When's the last time you've been called a snake? A viper, no less. We don't see it in the passage, but we feel it in the force of his words. People were coming out to add him to the trophy shelf of their performance. The people were coming out to be, to be baptized by John the Baptist because he was the flavor of the month, the thing going. All the religious people were impressed by his knowledge of the Old Testament and stirred by the passion of his Voice, And when he sees people coming out, there's a people, and we'll talk more about that next week, some specific people, but they're coming out simply to perform. Nothing had changed in their heart. You see, this was just one of the, the performance trophies that they're going to add to their shelf. Did you go out and see John? Yeah, I went out and see John. You're baptized by John? Yeah, I was baptized by John. Man, you're really sincere. And yet their life never changes. John arrests them at the front end. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath of coming, you brood of vipers? In other words, you're not serious about this. You're not taking this seriously. You don't believe there's a wrath to come. You think you're totally accepted because your last name is a Jewish name. The roots that you have go back to Abraham. So you think you're fine. Matter of fact, he says this, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're really serious about this, why aren't you mourning? Why aren't you crying? Why aren't you confessing? They're just coming to the river to be baptized. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abram as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, to raise up children of Abraham. No change of mind. Because their identity was settled in Abraham. They didn't understand. You stand before God on your own. Nobody stands in your place. You'll be held accountable for your heart attitude, not the ledger of your obedience. God can raise up stones. This isn't the issue about who your father's father's father was. The stones can be raised up by God. What matters here is not your identity in Abraham, but your heart condition before God. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How could it be that a people of God could get so off target? How could that be? I mean, think about that. You've got things like the time at Sinai. You've got the deliverance from people like the Midianites. You've got 
God going before you. You've got miracles happening. You've got burning bushes and pillars of fire. You've got the Ark of the Covenant. You have all this other stuff. And by the time we arrive and John comes preparing the way for the Lord, the people are so hard in their hearts. How could that be? Truth be told, left on our own, we'd all be that way. We're all hard. But there's something unique that I think this passage touches that needs to be reminded to the church in America and to our church. You see, when you repent, it involves particular elements. Repentance is not something just feeling bad about what you've done. It's when you turn to God and you turn away from sin. And you know how I know when someone's done that? You can see it in their life. You see, it's, it's really as simple as just the idea of walking. Repentance is, is when I think differently about something. So I'm going in my life in a particular direction. I begin to think differently about something related to my direction. And what do I do? I turn around. And the way you know that I think differently when I'm walking is because I turn around. In other words, knowing to say, I am going this direction. This is where I want to go. I want to be over there on that side over there. Okay, I'll see you later. Now you go, well, no, you clearly didn't want to be there because you changed in what you did. I think in America today, in many churches today, and maybe in this church, that we have a tendency to think that when I repent, it's because I feel bad about something. I feel bad about it and it makes it in my mind makes it in my home, in my mind. But when I get in the car, I act the same. You see, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, the church at Ephesus faced the same thing. And one of the things that he says to the church at Ephesus, he says, repent from what you've done. And then the idea of do what you've been called to do. So he goes through it. Remember from how you've fallen, from where you'd fallen. Repent of that and then do. Those three dynamics are absolutely essential for repentance. But the problem today is, was we leave from this place, you're going to go and talk with Christians, neighbors, co-workers, who have no fruit in their life whatsoever. They might say they're a Christian. How do you talk to those kinds of people? You don't simply accept them as a Christian. You don't simply say, hey, we're both Christians. If they have no fruit, give them the gospel. Call them to repentance. Tell them there should be a change in their life. We're under an illusion today by many pastors who talk about the fact that becoming a Christian is the best thing you can do for your life. That's true. But the problem is, You do it for your life. You see, the motivation is you get a better life or you get peace. Or the standard is you go to heaven. You know what's interesting about that? I never see the Apostle Paul framing the gospel that way. And I've looked. I never see Christ talking about the fact that pray this prayer if you want to go to heaven. (laughs) That doesn't do that. You know, Jesus, when he gave a message, probably the most people he had in front of him at any given time was the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does something you'll never see in America. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me. People were creeped out by that. Uh, honest, I'd be creeped out. Everybody splits. 
That's a terrible way to grow a ministry. Then he says to the disciples, do you want to leave? And the great answer would be my answer. Wouldn't be that I know what in the world you're talking about. But they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, we can't figure everything out, but we know this. We want to follow after you. And if that means we all die, that's what we've signed up for. You see, that kind of Christianity is, is vacant today. And it's not something new. It's something you have to fight against. And John the Baptist was fighting it against the people of his day. People were saying, hey, we don't have to. Abraham, a book to accept you repent. Shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible facts of man's sinfulness and guilt. Calling on all men everywhere to repent results in shallow conversions. And so we have myriads of glib-tongued professors today who give no evidence of regeneration whatever prating of salvation by grace. They manifest no grace in their lives, loudly declaring they are justified by faith alone. They fail to remember that faith without works is dead and that justification by works before men is not to be ignored as though it were a contradiction to justification by faith before God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The redirection of the human will will always manifest in repentance, turning to God, turning away from evil, and doing what he's called you to do. More than that, J.I. Packer in Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God says this, that repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims that they may make on their own lives. In other words, Jesus is Lord. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in the studies on the Sermon of the Mount. This is 1959 in England. Repentance means that you realize that you are guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God. Just as you hear that, vile sinner, people start going, oh man, that's hitting hard. I mean, vile sinner, who's going to listen to that? Anybody who wants to listen to Christ will listen to that. Anyone that God is stirring in their heart. Let us not, in our American way, dial down the truth in hopes that people will turn up the volume and trust Christ. Last few days, I was up in Pennsylvania, the great white north of all the snow that's been brought down here, and cold weather, sitting in a Dunkin' Donuts with a friend I hadn't seen in 42 years. 42 years. I love it. I try to find people that I knew growing up, and I tell them I'm a pastor, and after they get off the ground, we talk about our lives. Talk to him about the Lord. Slipping in there different things of the truth of the law and his need. And finally I said, I said his name. I said, you got to understand something. Before God, who's holy, God's wrath is going to pour out on you. You're going to find yourself in hell forever. How does that affect you? No kidding. Well... I don't want that. But man, those new Mack trucks. Have you seen those new Mack trucks? Those are amazing trucks. So here's the thing. God's not stirring in his heart. 
Because the Holy Spirit wants to make much of Christ. In order to make much of Christ, he's got to make less of him. He didn't hit him. It was like a kickball when we were in eighth grade, bouncing off his forehead, this truth. But here's the deal. I don't dial down the message because I want him to accept it. I keep it right where it's at. I watch to see if the Holy Spirit convicts him. If he doesn't, I plant the seed, move on, and I'll hopefully see him again the next time I go up north. That's what you've got to do, people. Too many churches dial it down. We want people to feel good, and we don't say things like, vile sinner. That's what you are. If you're not a follower of Christ here today, you're a vile sinner in the eyes of God. Lloyd-Jones goes on, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God. You are a hell-bound person. It means you've begun to realize this thing is called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it. And you turn back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world, its mind, its outlook, as well as its practices. You deny yourself, take up the cross, go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest in the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but makes no difference. That is repentance. And that's what he says and why he says it, John the Baptist. Because it's the fact that you're a, you are sharing that with people. Look for those that God has prepared. The ones that he turns their heart. If he doesn't turn their heart, continue to minister. Now, you have to do that with people that are very often churchgoers. Students, kids that are in Christian schools. The location doesn't make you something. Your life does. The fruit coming from your life. As the band is coming up, it's important for us uh, to take time and think about this because you and I live in a world in which we should regularly be repenting as Christians. That's what Ephesians, excuse me, Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus that he's speaking about. Remember, repent, do. Just as John was born for the role he played, you are born for the role to tell other people this truth. He was the voice, capital V. You are a voice in your neighborhood, in your school. Call people to look to Christ. Give them the law. Put the full weight of the law on them so that they would need Christ. And for those that know Christians, that are more make-believers than believers, express your concern. Express your hope. Not from a perch, in which you're looking down, but on a level field in which you are hoping for more. John was born for the role he played, and John was prepared for the hostility he encountered. So this is the deal. If you realize that you were born for this, that God has done something in you, and now he's told you you're going to face persecution, remember what he did with the disciples before the upper room. I'm going away. I'm going away. I'm going away. If they treated me like this, they'll treat you like this. He did that roughly a year and a half before he went to the cross, telling the people they saw what happened to Christ. Know that people are going to do it to you. And when they don't be surprised... Know that when we stand on what is true, people aren't going to like it. But notice this. What they need is what you're telling them. Even if they may reject it, this is the only hope for them. is a relationship with Christ. He was prepared for the hostility encountered. You need to be 
as well. Let us pray and ask God to give us the grace necessary to live out these truths and to have lives that are on fire for him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, this truth. We thank you that the day in which Luke wrote is an awful lot like our day. John the Baptist was a voice preparing the way for you, the Lord. We can be the messenger. We can be that voice. We can be that one crying out. We could be that person comforting people in our life by saying there is hope. There is a way. And Jesus Christ is it. And there's none other. Give us boldness. Give us insight. Help us to care more about people's future, their eternity, than our reputation in their life. And thank you that you are the ancient of days. This is not something we are making up and we are not playing make-believe. You are the ancient of days who has called your people to yourself throughout the centuries. Thank you that we are that. And any in this room who aren't yours, have never trusted, give them restlessness until they rest in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.